Hello, everyone. Welcome to Word with Dave Clay. I am not one to give out false hope. (laughs) But I think all hope is good. And certainly it takes a lot of optimism and hopefulness to overcome some of the circumstances and situations that I encounter, unfortunately, on a daily basis doing the work that I do, the psychological counseling in the practice, private practice that I do. There's a lot of tragedies, there's a lot of sorrows, there's a lot of grief. I know we all go through things, but some do definitely seem worse than others. And for me, with not only a singular incident, but many people have a series of very trying situations that they need to work through, I understand completely why they give up on hope. So offering false hope, what's still saying is no hope at all, but I can't hold them back. I can't impede them. If they have any hope at all, I'm going to celebrate it. Uh, If they can see any light at the end of the tunnel, I'm going to take that as one of the most important of all resources and try to tap into the motive that that represents to use as energy, the necessary energy, to get them through. Uh, maybe the not only the immediate circumstance, but if it's a series of circumstances, those type of uh, issues, uh, loss, trauma, uh, physical, emotional, social, all facets of a person's life, financial, all of those, though, tend to also stack, so to speak, over time. And uh, with that, when there's a series, you may actually be treating someone in a more immediate context, but actually addressing uh, a, an emotional reaction that's taken, that initiated years ago, it's taken years to get to this point. And in that, then I admire anybody with any measure of hope. What I would like to say is, rather than false hope, I'd like to say, let's just make sure we add some aspect of reality to it so that uh, we're not unrealistic in either our goals or aspirations. And, And I need to say this too. Sometimes individuals are so hopeless, they'll grab a hold of even the smallest, seemingly so, of possibilities so that they get past the despair and the hopelessness and helplessness that typically goes along with that. And that may be, even if it's a bit false in the sense that maybe they'll never be this thing or that thing or have this or that, why would I deny them that? I just want to measure it through once more some lens of objectivity and reality, good reality testing. That's what we call it in the business. Psychology Today, May, June 20 of 23, reality check, how to spot false hope and get on a successful track by Dan J. Tomasulo, PhD. What happens when a positive emotion like hope gets out of hand? Hope is believing that a positive future outcome is possible combined with a desire for that outcome. But what if hope is at odds with reality. Hope is not useful when we have unrealistic expectations. 
Nowhere is this more noticeable than the fa- in the face of repeated failures. The ad that promises fantastic weight loss in days and the investment opportunity that promises to double your money fuel the fantasy. With little work, says the ad, you can get what you want quickly and painlessly. When we launch into these endeavors, there is a feeling of control and optimism, and we easily become overconfident. However, because these efforts are built on the sandy foundation of unrealistic expectations, it isn't long before distress and eventual long before distress and eventual failure. Then it happens again, a distorted belief that this time will be different. What is delusory? Delusional. What is delusory is the amount of labor, speed, change, and degree of helpfulness our goal will yield. These distortions can wrangle their way into our consciousness and cause us to act and fail repeatedly. We get stuck and caught in the convoluted world of false hope. Correcting false hope is relatively straightforward. Learning what is feasible or impossible begins with recognizing a pattern of believing that the unattainable is within reach. It requires one to remember this familiar familiar feeling and thought pattern along with the memory of failure in the past. This is essential to implement change. Once you know you're in the false hope loop, a few things can help you align with more realistic goals. Whatever your goal may be, losing weight or saving money, look up the average amount of time and effort people invest and results they achieve. The fantasy that that you are different from the average is the first clue of false hope. The key is to target the average. If average weight loss per week is two pounds, then that is your measure, not your fantasy amount. Reappraising your long-term and short-term goals and regularly adjusting your strategy, timeline, and approach are all part of remaining resilient. Using short-term goals to increase motivation and progress and bring hope. False hope in others. Someone you care about is caught in a loop of unrealistic expectations, but they balk if you try to convince them they are suffering false hope. Say a friend of yours wants to go back to college. They are sure they are in a better place now than before they dropped out. They plan to take 18 credits for the semester and make up that lost time. You know this is irrational, but they are convinced that they have the drive and skill to get this done. Acknowledge their enthusiasm. Let them know you can see how excited they are about going back to school. You don't want to dampen their eagerness. You want to help them channel it. Remind them of the last time they attempted 18 credits. They dropped out. False hope can put blinders on a person. Gently help remove them. Also remind your friend that when they took six credits, they aced the courses. Using examples from their own history of success helps them challenge their unreasonable expectations. When a person comes into conflict with their own way of thinking, they mature emotionally and intellectually. It is how true wisdom develops. It is how true wisdom develops and what makes for realistic optimism and hope. Again, Dan J. Tamaluso. 
Tomasulo, Ph.D., Psychology Today, May, June 2023, Reality Check, How to Spot False Hope and Get on a Successful Track. Well, I hate to be sort of negative. I don't want to take any of the so-called wind out of your sails. I don't want to be the Debbie Downer, as they used to call it. I don't want to be the negative person. I don't want to take anything away from your enthusiasm. We love your enthusiasm. But, and then there's the but, but, B-U-T that is, it's probably not likely. You're probably not going to. Look back on your past, be a bit more realistic in your aspirations, or aspire But be prepared because most people don't achieve greatness in this way. Greatness does not necessarily have to mean a person's narcissistic or believing in yourself as much then. Believing yourself does not mean you're narcissistic. It just means you are aspirational for certain and you tend to be a bit optimistic or hopeful. But from all of the work I've done for all of these years, going back to 1985, and this is somewhat anecdotal, if not entirely, I would want to say this. Nobody ever overcomes doubt and fear and avoidance. Nobody, especially if it's coming from them. Now, if it's coming from others, you could take that on as a challenge, and I'm going to prove them wrong, and I'm going to do all these things, and they don't believe in me. And certainly, as your psychological counselor, I don't want that role. I don't want to be perceived that way. Now, if you're manic and your bipolar disorder, or if you're psychotic and in that delusory, <laughs> delusional, then I'm going to say, well, you know, that's a bit delusional. Let's do some reality testing here, a reality check. Or maybe you are a bit manic or even so, diagnosably so, narcissistic. We should probably modify. But average is a range. And average may be entirely built upon high and low points. There's always going to be within that range, the lowest in that range, a lowest score. But there's always going to be a highest one. The average is somewhere in the middle. So why would I want to put a wet blanket on your fire? I don't. What I do want to do, though, is, and I think the article captures a bit of it, although I think it's presupposing that most of us are average, which really, statistically speaking, is accurate and true. But I don't know that I'm ready to live with that just yet, so indulge me a bit. And if you're feeling really, really down and you've had a series of failures or you feel very low in terms of your self-worth, self-value, or you've got these things called cognitive distortions that you acquired because you grew up in a family that did not want you to succeed. They had failure identity themselves and chose to pass that on as the legacy rather than any sort of genuine get behind you and support you. Uh, Maybe the love in that family tended to be more transactional and conditional. Maybe there was just a a lot of circumstances. Maybe it did come from poverty. (laughs) Maybe you came from some disadvantaged sort of position in life. That doesn't mean, though, that the aptitude isn't there. That's really 
probably where I want to go with this conversation. Who am I to say what you're capable of? Even the best measurements of aptitude have a range of error, standard error of measurement. And if you're not believing in yourself, then even if I give you some sort of a test for aptitude, you might be underperforming simply because you recognize, oh, there's a performance variable here, or at least there's the variable of performance, and I never do well on tests. I never do well in this kind of, And I think we need to recognize those are things that do suppress actual test scores. Does it make the test invalid? No. Is it normed? Yes. Are there averages? Are there means, as with average, median score, mode score, most common score? Yes, there's all sorts of different ways to measure where you fall on that bell-shaped curve. But at the same time, though, nobody knows your aptitude. Even you don't until you test it a bit. So my encouragement would be rooted in don't dissuade hopefulness or optimism, even if it's a bit narcissistic and you're coming out of a very pessimistic, fatalistic sort of paradigm, way of thinking, again, cognitive distortions about yourself, the people around you, whether you can trust them or not to be there for you, unconditional versus conditional sort of affirmation, regard, or maybe you just have had a lot of bad luck and things have constantly come up that's gotten in the way. Who am I to be able to say to you, oh, well, let's just base that on the past. The past is the best predictor of future. Because I'm not sure that's true because there are extenuating circumstances that tend to, again, suppress, put a wet blanket on it. But what I would do is I'd want to empirically, hypothetical, deductive, sort of reasoning, highest order of rationality, logical thinking, I would assess all of those things, including your motive or your optimism and hope. I consider that, as you can't tell, as one of the greatest of resources besides mine. And if we have agreement, then that's worth something of value. But I would say we're going to look at all of that, but we're not going to look at all of that without at least making sure we see that objectively as we would see you objectively. And if you still, in looking at the facts, believe, let's then set up a theory, a theorem, and go about testing it. If you think you can go back to school and maybe do this 18 hours in a semester. I've done that before. I'm sure others out there who are listening to this podcast right now have had 18 hours in a semester. Yes, it's difficult. I'm not the smartest guy in the world. My IQ is not genius. I'm not even sure my aptitude when it comes to books and studying is as high as other people's. At least it doesn't seem that way. But I made it, and I made it with an acceptable grade. And then even that in judgment, the grades are averaged. They're normed. So, so there's just a lot of room for success even within that kind of conceptualization, putting all those things together. But we may say, okay, let's test this a bit. Let's start with the six hours and then we can progressively build. Let's add another course or two. Let's get to 12 hours 
Let's get to 15 hours. Are you sure that you need all 18 this semester? Okay, let's go ahead then once we've established success, or at least as we would then have offered that theorem and kept modifying that with the feedback. Yes, I was successful, so let's do three more. Yes, I was successful, let's do three more. But you won't know until you hit that mark. I've actually taken more than 18 hours. Uh, There were some labs and independent study that went with that. But that's ambitious, regardless of who you are. But at the same time, though, it's up to you to be able to make that, or it should be up to you, left to you, to make that ultimate final decision. I don't want to see you fail again. I will warn you about that. You know, we've had several failures. If we're going to take this challenge on, if you're going to remain in this optimistic, hopeful perspective, then if something should come along that would kind of derail you, we just have to be careful not to let the bottom fall out. And you to go even deeper into whatever, the pit of despair, trying to look for that <laughs> hit bottom sort of dimension. But at the same time, you may not. And maybe it is a matter of not only you believing in you, maybe it is a matter of me or several somebodies also believing in you. It's, it's a team effort. It's a team approach. Maybe it's your advisor at school who goes ahead and signs off on it. Maybe it's the professor in the classes or in a class or if you're in your, at your graduate school level, they may be the same professor. It may be the same professor for several classes that says, oh, I think we could do this. We'll get through this together. We'll work on it together. Maybe it's just a do or die sort of situation. If I don't get this GPA that I need and these are the hours I need or I need to get this course or I'm going to lose my scholarship, so I'm not going to... We'll do everything we can to help that person succeed. I don't think that's false hope. I just think the hope, and I do, once again, believe the article kind of tries to capture this, needs to be salted with sufficient truth or fact or reality testing. But let's not run the risk of holding you back in such a confident and certain way just so that we don't create another opportunity to fail. That sounds to me like I'm guilty then of pessimism or I'm guilty then of fatalism or that I somehow have this crystal ball or this magic formula that I could put all of your personal sort of factors, the things that make you who you are, IQ, EQ, uh, experience, supports it, all of that together in some formula that's going to give us a, a, a number, a raw number is what I was going to say, raw data, that we can then norm, and then we can say with a certain degree of confidence or within a confidence interval, the probability of that being accurate is within plus or th- minus three or four numbers, points. That's how we do that, by the way, statistically. And I'm not a statistician. I don't like numbers. I don't like statistics. Maybe you could tell. I'm not saying they're not worth or they're not valuable. Their worth isn't there or they're not valuable or that you should do anything without a thorough analysis. I'm just saying that statistics can be used, especially if for whatever reason 
They're used in a wrong sort of way, prejudiced sort of way, a stereotyping sort of way, stereotypical sort of way, to hold people back. (laughs) I don't know if it's as prevalent as some might believe culturally, but I think that's the premise of a lot of disadvantaged groups of individuals, whatever you would measure their disadvantage based on, economics, culture, any of those factors, that they don't do well on these standardized or normed sort of measures of aptitude and achievement because they've not had the same experiences. But those numbers get people into school. (laughs) Numbers on the ACT and I think the SAT still is used some, but not probably as prominent as the ACT, the interest exam. Or if it's the MedCat for medical school or LSAT, I think it is, for legal profession. Or the AFAB for the military. That's unfortunately a risk. (laughs) You could be prejudiced or there is prejudice implicit in the evaluation instrument itself because it was normed on a particular group of people that really isn't representative of the diversity of culture society. (laughs) Maybe in the past, the only people who got into college were the ones that were really brilliant or the ones that had a lot of money. And with that, I'm not saying money should or could buy degrees, education, any more than money should buy any sort of appointment or any sort of job. I don't want to think that way, but we know that that's probably true. It does. But at the same time, though, if you have access through that resource that that represents to the best of educations and you already have a I'm a pretty good sort of attitude about yourself and then you put those two things together, you may actually score higher than someone who grew up, again, absent money and did not have that generational blessing, so to speak, of, oh, well, we've succeeded and we can continue to succeed and you're kind of our, of us and part of this culture and part of this family. And it starts to get that stereotypical, again, sort of, I don't know, <laughs> I want to say vibe, vibe to it. That's not what I want to be as a psychological counselor. That's not what I want my practice to be. I want it to be empirically based, objective. Let's make sure we use that as the basis then for any sort of hope and optimism, not to take any hope and optimism away from you, but let's just go through the steps of marrying facts to it. But we could test it. There's no reason you can't test it. That's part of the journey for psychotherapy or the psychotherapy journey for psychological counseling for psychotherapy. And I think you would want that. You would not want me to not only stereotypically or in some sort of prejudicial way hold you back, but you probably wouldn't want me to lie to you either and say, oh, you're great. It's going to be great. You'll do fine. But the only way we're going to know for sure is if we test it. And the only thing I can do for sure is make sure we continue to apply the best we know in ways of testing it. That's how we undo cognitive distortions. We test your thoughts to find out if they're rational and realistic or not. That's what we do with any of the aspirational uh, sort of dimensions of change 
growth? Is this a healthy way to go? Is it adaptive? Are these the changes that you really want? Will they get what you say that you want? We're, again, kind of plotting out a strategy. Let's see. And then, of course, I'm going to offer the best I know, not only from my anecdotal years of experience, but also my studies, my doctorate, my continuing education, my continuing, uh, such as with the podcast, Uh, survey of current data, research, reading journal articles, having my ear, so to speak, to the ground of cultural trends and new levels of awareness and insight and all of those great things that go into the studies (laughs) of who we are and where we're going and what we as people and culture and world, what we want to be known for, renowned for. I don't know. Maybe it's just for our own <laughs> benefit. Maybe somewhere out there, somebody's looking at it and saying, oh, well, that's a pretty decent planet, that planet Earth. I don't know. But in psychological sort of terms, that seems to be ethically what I'm supposed to do. It's in all of the laws. It's in all of those ethical statements. It's in all the things that otherwise would land me in a mess of trouble when it comes to uh, not doing them and maintaining my credibility as a behavioral health, a mind health sort of provider. That's what we try to do again on the podcast. I try to read what I think is the best presentation for all of us. And I think Psychology Today does a pretty decent job. And I think the authors are pretty credible. And most of what's in there is not primary research. It is then something that comes from the authors taking and putting together or at least offering a summary of the research. It's more than an abstract, but it's a bit of a summary. Some of it is just reflecting, as we do on the podcast, what they've read and what they've studied. And they do a great job of citing the references and the sources. So that's why we do the podcast. I want you to be informed like I am or as I am. And I want you to make the best decision possible. And I'm just going to do everything I can to help you do that without prejudice, without bias, without subjectivity corrupting it, without my opinions getting in the way. I want it to be very valid. (laughs) I want to be whatever we do to be something that continues to work for you, that's reliable and is evidence-based. And once more, according to the best model of research and study and pontification and theorizing that's available. But should you be getting any of that or all of that from the podcast? Of course, I want to invite you back. Now, you can communicate with me. You can email me at thewordhouse at frontier.com or drmdclay at thewordhouse.com. You can also find us online at thewordhouse.com. You can also call 304-523-9673-WORD. But whether you do or you don't, The podcasts aren't designed for that, unless you want to create a conversation or dialogue. What they're designed for, though, is just simply to share information. And so you get something good from them. And, of course, I do 
offer opinion, but that's just to stir up your thoughts and to help you kind of have a little bit of a conversation with somebody outside of yourself, a bit of objectivity to solve it with, as much fact, as much then in pursuit of truth. But should you find them beneficial, I'd of course like to invite you back to our next podcast of Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. And until then, I want to wish you the best of health and mind health. And I want to say thanks. <laughs>